Good evening. Good to see you here this evening. I have a coat on the front pew if anybody wants to see it. The spirit was willing, but the body is hot, and I can't, I can't tolerate it this evening. We have special guests with us this evening. Representative Stephen Meeks and his dad are with us this evening. I'm going to invite Brother Stephen to come up in a little while and talk to you about a little project that we're working with him on and an invitation for you to help us with that for a little while after the service this evening. I did learn just before the service that uh, you have a brother who's also a representative, is that right? Not many fathers can probably say they have two sons who are state representatives, so congratulations to you. You must have done something right. Esther, if you would, please, let me give you a couple of uh, prayer requests from this morning. I told you this morning that there were two good things I needed to tell you about, and I told you one. Well, you know, I forgot. Number two, and most importantly, perhaps, was that we received word this week that Red Sisson got a diagnosis back that he has no cancer. He does have COPD and possibly emphysema, but he does not have any cancer. And for that, we're eternally grateful. The other thing I shared with you is that Dan and Julie have a little grandson that they're proud of, Alvin Chester, seven pounds, 11 ounces. Oh, congratulations to them and to Sarah and John on their uh, new arrival. The offering plates are here in the front as they always are on Sunday night. If you have anything that you need to contribute, now that'll be here for you. Also, don't forget that Janice Austin will be having surgery tomorrow on her wrist and remember to pray for her if you would. Book of Esther, Esther chapter 5 and verse number 1. In the last chapter, a previously unknown man named Haman was elevated by the king to a position second only to himself. Part of that position was that everyone was to bow and pay homage to him. Mordecai refused to show Haman the respect that he had commanded. Haman was so incensed that he was able to deceive the king into passing a law that would not only kill Mordecai, but all the Jews in the Persian Empire and seize their properties. Mordecai became aware of this and he and the other Jews began to publicly mourn in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai makes Esther aware of this situation and instructs her that she must intercede with the king for her people. The chapter ends with several serious obstacles in carrying out that task, not the least of which is that she had not been called into the king's presence in more than 30 days. But let me list off some of those obstacles that she faced. First of all, to speak to the king, Esther had to break the law for which the penalty is death. There's a certain irony in the fact that in chapter 1, Vashti, the previous queen, had risked her life by refusing to appear when summoned by the king. And now in chapter 4, Esther, her replacement, the new queen, risked her life by appearing before the king unsummoned. Those who appeared before the king without invitation were liable to immediate execution. 
This was no empty threat. <clears throat> Contemporary depictions of the Persian king that have, have been ex excavated have shown him seated on the throne holding a scepter flanked by various officials including a soldier with an ax. Secondly, to make her appeal to the king, Esther had to confess that she had already deceived him. If Esther will attempt to persuade the king to spare her life and the lives of her fellow Jews. But in order to do that, she has to admit that she has deceived the king by keeping back the fact that she indeed is a Jew. Third, Esther is attempting to convince the king to reverse what is known as a irreversible law. The decree which uh, permitted the enemies of the Jews to kill them and to confiscate their property was executed as a law of the Persian, or Persians or the Medes and Persians. And those were always conceived as irreversible laws. It does not look as though the king will or can undo the law that he has allowed to be decreed in his name. These are very important aspects of this as she sees what is before her. Fourth, Esther seeks out to oppose Haman. Haman, one of the most powerful persons on the earth at that time, in that moment. The king has handed over a great deal of the portion of his power to Haman which enables him to pass laws the king has not even read. To appeal to the king is to go against Haman, who is a wealthy power broker who has the king's ear, not to mention the king's signet ring. And fifth and finally, Esther is pursuing a plan that will strike a serious blow to the king's pride. For the king to deal with Haman as the situation requires, the king will have to admit that he has not been wise in exalting Haman to power and pl placing him in a position of second only to himself. When we stop to realize though, and we look at those exterior things, we have to understand that we have an ultimate encouragement as the children of God that we find in Proverbs chapter 21 in verse one, it says, and the king's heart is like channels of water in the Lord's hands. Between <clears throat> chapter 4 and chapter 5, there is a dramatic pause. We are left in suspense. We are not told exactly what transpires during that three-day fast that all the Jews were holding together, fasting, and we hope praying uh, for God to intervene. And this pause represents a silent yet a powerful interlude during which Esther seeks strength and wisdom to do what she needs to do. Now, even though God was silent in the sense that we do not know what he's doing or what he's thinking, we can trust that he is at work. During a waiting period, God is not, not only working in our hearts, he is working in other people's hearts as well. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 40, 31, but those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow faint. They will walk and not be faint. When we find ourselves in one of those interlude periods, one of those waiting periods in our lives, 
when we need to wait for the Lord in order to gain wisdom and strength and direction, we also should ask others to pray with us and then give it over to the Lord and wait with a listening ear and a watchful eye. And that's exactly what Esther did. She waited, she fasted, and although the Bible doesn't say so at this place, I believe she prayed and she listened at her heart and soul. And because of this interlude with God, Esther was able to approach that moment of truth to which she was going to step into the presence of the king calmly and wisely and confidently, knowing, however, when she stepped into the room, he had the scepter in his hand, and unless he extended the scepter to her, she would die. Now let's look at the plan of Esther in, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and we see a, the appearance of Esther before the king and how she is received in the first two, chap, first two verses. And now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on the royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was that when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand and then Esther went near and touched the top or the tip of the scepter. Uh, that's an incredible story, but we, we enjoy an even greater privilege. We enjoy the privilege that we can come before our king who has an open door policy. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, he says, let us therefore with confidence draw the, near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, to help in time of need. He even extends to us our ability to bring those needs to him because we read in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And even though we have such a glorious privilege, if we are honest, we have to admit that sometimes we've done very little with that precious promise. Notice, secondly, the request of the queen in verse 3. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given to you up to half of the kingdom. Now, even though the expression up to half of the kingdom was a, an intentional exaggeration, it was not to be thought of as frivolous but it meant that the king was disposed to be generous in granting a request. We, we, we witnessed also that kind of a promise uh, made to Salome after the salacious dance that she did before her stepfather Herod. He promised her in Mark chapter 6 and verse 22, ask me whatever you will and I will give it to you and whatever you ask of me I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And we all probably remember that what she asked for was the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And because of his promise, Herod felt that he had to oblige. In verse 6, it says, And so Esther answered, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly. 
that he may do as Esther has said. And so the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now, obviously, the king would know that Esther was not risking her life coming into his presence to ask him to come to a banquet. He knew that what she had to ask was a very important thing or she would have not made that risk. And he also understood that apparently she was not yet ready to make that request. Esther showed great tact by not blurting out the request right away. The wait would have only made him more eager to know what she wants. She wanted first to win the king's confidence in her, and she also wanted Haman at the banquet uh, to ultimately expose his wickedness. In verse 6, we are told, at the banquet, when banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? And it shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half of the kingdom. And it shall be it shall be done. King Xerxes repeated his offer to Queen Esther. It was more of a proverbial expression, as I said, than a literal offering of anything up to half of the kingdom. But he meant what he said. Again, we see the reluctance of the queen in verses 7 and 8. And then Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is this. And then I see a dramatic pause here. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them tomorrow, and I will do as the king has said. So Esther put off the request for one more day, promising to reveal her petition at the second banquet on the next day. Now, why does Esther not present her request immediately? And there are lots of possible answers. Perhaps she just didn't feel the time was right yet. Perhaps she felt that the Lord needed to work in the king's heart one more day, according to that proverb that we read, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it whichever way he wishes. Perhaps she felt that the Jews needed to pray one more day. They'd already spent three days and nights in fasting and prayer. Perhaps she wanted to pray herself about specifically and exactly she should say to the king. At any rate, I believe she was being led by the Spirit of God to wait. The next thing that we see is the arrogance of Haman, Haman's highs and lows. Verse 9, it says, So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled filled with indignation against Mordecai. Just how fragile Haman's ego is seen in the fact that his ego was stroked Uh, when he was invited to dinner with the king and the queen. And although although nothing about his power or position had changed, and by the same token, his ego was quashed when he was leaving the meal and Mordecai, just one solitary Jew, failed to bow before him, he felt as if his whole life had changed, even though his position and power are still the same. Yet, Sometimes are we not like him in many points when we are downcast because of some minor earthly setback that 
we have in fact lost count and lost sight of the incredible glories of our heavenly inheritance. Why is it that we as believers can be in a place where God is working and doing great things all around us, yet all we can think of is one or two things that are seemingly out of place? We see a wonderful contrast between those who are led by the flesh, Haman, he's led by the flesh, and Esther, following the leadings of the Holy Spirit. So to bolster his flagging ego, Haman went home and he called for his friends and his wife, and to them he boasted of his successes, riches, numbers of sons, his promotion. We read about them in verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh and then Haman told them of his great riches of the multitudes of his children and everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king how many of you probably realize this is not the first time they've heard this story about his successes and his promotions Yada, 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 me, 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 brag, brag, brag. Let me remind you of how great I am. Haman's self-esteem and his self-worth were bundled in his accomplishments, however. His heart reflected a very serious spiritual condition. It seems to me that there was a void in the center of Haman's life that no amount of success would fill. But to apply this personally, what is it that causes us sometimes to lose heart and all out of proportion to the circumstances that we're in? Verse 14, the counsel that is offered to Haman. Might be entitled, sometimes you, beat, you should not follow the advice of others. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let the gallows be made. 50 cubits high, and the morning suggests to the king that the Mordecai be hanged on it, and then go merrily with the king to the banquet, and the thing that pleased this thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows built. So Haman's wife and friends say, well, you know, if this guy has such a problem in your life, why don't you just build a gallows and get rid of him, kill him? Now, we talked about before the image of gallows here helps us, makes us think that they're talking about hanging by the leg until you're dead. Among the Persians, it was much worse than that. It was impaled uh, until your death. And I could go into gross detail, but I won't. But consumed with anger and enraged pride, he makes that gallows 80 feet tall. The gallows were so big that the next day, even the king and his palace knew about the gallows that had been built by, by Haman's house. In chapter 6, we introduced to what we talked about before in our study here, and that's the providence of God. We see, first of all, the providence of God in remembering Mordecai. Now, in our study on chapter 3, we define the providence of God as God is behind the scenes directing the ordinary events of life to bring about his predetermined plans and purposes. Uh, 
Chapter 6 begins with the king's insomnia, his inability to sleep. In, ver in verse 1, re we read, that night. I think it should technically read, that very night. That is, the night that Haman had already spoken to his friends and had made this decision about Mordecai. That very night, the king could not sleep. And so one was commanded to bring him the book of the records of the Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Azuraris or Xerxes. We see the providence of God at work in that it was that very night, the night when Haman made his plans to have Mordecai killed, that God moves the heart of the king. It seems that true that God accomplishes some of his deepest works in the hearts of men as they lay asleep, lay awake in their beds at night rather than asleep. But God's sovereignty did not end with keeping the king awake, but it also directed his choice of alternative activities for the night. There were many other things he could have done. But he requested the chronicles of his, of his reign be read. The modern equivalent might be the congressional record, and I would suggest that either would be an antidote to sleeplessness. So, but he was not just then reading from the chronicles, but he was reading from that exact portion that related how Mordecai, just a few years earlier, had saved the king's life. The king asked then in verse 3, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king is horrified. He's horrified to learn that somehow this man who had saved his life had slipped through the cracks of bureaucracy and had not been rewarded. This, in the king's eyes, was a situation that must be rectified immediately. So we see providence of God in remembering Mordecai, but we also see the providence of God reducing Haman. We see a rather poetic justice in what happens in verses 4 and 5. And so the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So Mordecai, uh, Haman could, not, could hardly wait until he got daylight so that he could be the first into the king's presence and that he would be able to lay this request before the king. But he had no sooner walked into the king's outer courtyard than the king says, who among my advisors are available? And they look around and they say, well, Haman is here, your chief advisor. So they tell him to go into the king and <clears throat> verses six through nine, it says, so Haman came in and the king asked him a question. He says, what shall be done for a man whose king delights to honor? <laughs> it says, the scripture says, and Haman thought in his own heart, he's talking about me. 
He wants to reward me. Now, as quickly as he came up with these, these prescriptions of what ought to be done, he's given this a lot of thought. He's already thought, what could, be, what could be mine that I don't already have? I have power, I have prestige, I have money, all of those things. What could I have? Here's what he thought of. He said, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed upon his head. And then let his robe and his horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor and then parade him on horseback before the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman was convinced that the king wanted to honor him. And as I said, he has obviously given this a great deal of thought. Thinks it, since he thinks this is to be rewards for himself, he really exaggerates the honor that he thought ought to be done. Little did Haman realize how wicked his thoughts were and how dangerous his fate was at that very moment. Beginning in verse 10, you could say this was the beginning of Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, Take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits within the king's gates. Leave nothing undone for all that you have spoken. And so Mordecai, and so Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on the horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights. All those words must have really stuck in his throat as he paraded Mordecai through the city. Haman, to his horror, has to honor Mordecai, his arch enemy. And he is honoring him in the very ways he thought that the king would be honoring him. In like fashion, we are told that one day, everyone is going to be forced to declare the honor of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.10 says that at the name of Jesus, every, now, every knee shall bow, those in heaven and those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In verse 12, we read, afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. It's certainly interesting how these two men responded to the honor that's given to Mordecai. Haman went home mourning with his head covered so that no one could see who he was. But look at what it says about Mordecai. It doesn't say Mordecai threw a great party that he invited all his friends over to relish in his newfound fame. It says he went back to life as normal. He went back to the place that he had previously served. Verse 12 says he went back to the king's gate. He sat there to pass judgment, to be a judge, if you will, before 
for people as they bring their suits before him. It says uh, Haman is, is mortified and Mordecai returns to his previous place. Now, read verse 13 and remember these are the same people who gave Haman opposite advice just a little bit earlier. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. Well, thanks a lot for such differing advice. They, but they're right on. Apparently, God's work at Providence is so clear at this point in this situation that even pagans are able to see the significance. It seems that the unbelievers here were quicker to believe Israel's God would act than his own people were. Then in verse 14 it says, And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring him Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Now things have gone badly, but they're about to get worse. The change in the circumstances of God's people was not here to be seen because of their bold and fearless action. But rather, it is seen as the invisible hand of God turning things around and restoring his people. In Genesis 12 and verse 3, God states, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. God made that promise to the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. It has never been rescinded. I do not approve of everything that President Trump has done, and I wish he were much more circumspect in what he says. But I agree with his decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. The reversal we see in the circumstances of the Jews reveals that beneath the surface of human decisions and the actions is an unseen and uncontrollable power at work which can neither be explained nor stopped. A consistency in God's rule of human history that is based on his word, not on circumstances. I close this evening with this illustration. The only survivor of a shipwreck washed up on a small uninhabited island. He prayed fervently for God to rescue him. And every day he scanned the horizon for help, but none ever seemed to be forthcoming. Exhausted, he eventually managed to build a little hut out of driftwood to protect himself from the elements and to store what few precious possessions he had. But then one day, after out scavenged for food, he arrived home to find his little hut in flames, the smoke rolling into the sky. The worst had happened. He had lost everything. He was stung with grief and with anger, and he said, God, how could you do this to me? Early the next day, however, he was wakened by the sound of a ship that was approaching the island. It had come to rescue him.
He said, how did you know I was here? He said, we saw your smoke signal. It's easy to get discouraged when things are going badly, but we shouldn't lose heart because God is at work in our lives, even in the midst of pain and difficulty. So remember the next time your little hut is burning to the ground, it just may be a smoke signal that summons the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your eternal word that it is unchanging and it is always available to us as a guide and direction for our lives. We admit that sometimes we get disheartened, we get discouraged, and it doesn't really have to be a really difficult thing sometimes for us to be discouraged, but help us to reflect on your providence as it's shown in your word. That behind the scene things that are going on in this world, that you are at work. We may not be able to see you at work right now in our lives, but you are. And behind all of those difficulties, there is a purpose, a purpose that you have predetermined for our lives if we will allow ourselves to be guided by your word. And so, Father, I pray you'd bring that realization into our hearts and lives this evening. And we thank you for the time that we're able to spend studying your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.